But let's, but let's pray before we do that. Lord, you are majestic. You are great. You are glorious. You are high and lifted up. And what we hope to do now in our time together is to catch a glimpse of you in that exalted state and then to recognize uh, how high above us you really are so that we see ourselves as you see us, uh, to, to get a glimpse of our great need for you and to get a glimpse of how you have met that need. So I pray as we look into your word, you will show us just that. In Jesus' name, amen. It, it always seems like uh, the current moment, whatever you're in, whatever's happening uh, in any given moment, uh, if, it, if it seems like a big deal at all, it, almo- it almost always seems like in that moment, it's the, it's the biggest and most important moment ever. Uh, you know, you th- if something significant happens to you in a moment, you think this is the most important thing ever in the history of the world is usually how we react to it. Uh, anything can be like this, okay? Uh, I have begun again this year to coach elementary boys basketball, fourth and fifth grade. And, and at any given point in the game, uh, either our team will make a play or a play will go against our team or a call will go against our team. And for fourth and fifth grade boys in that moment, you would think that was the most important thing in the history of the world. They react you know, either for, for celebration or for depression or, or appallment at, you know, how dare I get whistled for something. And you would think that that was like the greatest injustice or the biggest deal ever. And you have to pause and remind them if you're the coach and you, and you yourself can avoid getting too caught up in the moment. You have to be able to point out to them, look, that's just one play in a very long game. And that one play probably is not going to decide the whole outcome. And so you have to keep it in perspective. Like, yeah, it might not have been that great, but you know what? It is still just one moment. And it feels really important, but you know what? Let's keep it in perspective, right? So it could, it could happen with something like uh, an elementary... Elsa, if you would please. Uh, like an elementary basketball game. It could even happen for something like the national news. So we've seen some pretty significant events, even historical events in our country, even this past week. And if you listen closely to a lot of the narrative of those things, some would, some would want you to believe that that's like the biggest and most significant thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And, it's, and I don't at all want to minimize it and say it's not a big deal, okay? It is. I get it. In the history of our country, that is a black eye. It is a horrible thing that happened. But, you know, we also don't want to overreact and say, like, that's the defining moment of, like, everything that's ever happened ever. You see the difference? So a couple of things can relieve us from those feelings of getting too caught up in the moment. One would just be to have a right perspective of world history, to recognize the world has been going on a long time. A lot of things that have thought to have been really big deals at the times have come and gone, 
and most of us have forgotten about them or never known they've happened. The other thing is to have a right understanding of who God is and how big His plan is and how small even the events of nations can seem in light of all that He's doing and all that He's done in the history of the world and all that He plans to do in the future of the world. And only looking to Scripture can help us do those things. So that's where I want us to look now. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Chronicles. First Chronicles. And that book starts on page 287. If you're borrowing a Bible from us, page 287. First Chronicles is in the Old Testament. And uh, that's where I want us to pay attention for tonight and, Lord willing, for some weeks to come. Now, I've, I've read to you before from a different kind of book of Chronicles, from the, from the Chronicles of Narnia, and I want to start doing that uh, again. I want to start by doing that again. I'm not going to start reading you the whole series. But I do want to read, uh, I'm going to spoil the ending for you. Because this is uh, pretty fantastic. Um, the book ends like this. Uh, the four children who've been the main characters really all throughout the series have, have come to the end. And, and they think that all the things are just going to you know, uh, wither away. And, and it's going to seem to have all been very insignificant until they stand before Aslan the lion. And we're told that, uh, that as he spoke, as the lion spoke... He no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story, the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had been only the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. He says that all that, all that began to happen, he, he says it's the beginning of the real story. That's kind of what you could say uh, our Old Testament is. It's the beginning of the real story of the world. And Chronicles is a book, First and Second Chronicles uh, is, is a book that uh, really summarizes the entire Old Testament. It's the last book in the Old Testament in Hebrew. And so it is meant to kind of give a summary from creation to the very end of the Old Testament. So, Lord willing, for this spring semester, as we spend time in First and Second Chronicles... We're going to get a pretty fast-paced overview of the whole Old Testament. That's my goal, because I want to show you the beginning of the real story. And so the author of this book, who we don't know for sure who it is, uh, maybe Ezra. You might recognize him from another Old Testament book. But this author expects his readers to be very familiar with the story of the Old Testament. And the first about nine chapters, if you, just, if you just flip, go ahead and flip through the first, about nine chapters of First Chronicles, and what do you primarily see there? Descendants, okay. Genealogies, yeah, lists of names. And so the first nine chapters are really just kind of a, a really quick, almost like fast-forward 
of the history of a bunch of people, and it doesn't really say a lot about those people. It just kind of gives their names. That's what I want to talk about tonight, is those first about nine or ten chapters. So you're really excited, I can tell. Chapter 10 begins to retell uh, the stories of the kings in Judah, much like you would read about in First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings. But from these first several chapters, uh, I want to point out, and you've got a place for notes in your bulletin, so I maybe would write some of these things down and uh, be prepared to talk about them and, and learn and uh, try to learn some application from them as we break into small groups here in just a little while. So we're going to see from these first nine chapters four realities that shape the beginning of the real story. And if you look at First Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 1, who is the first name that's listed there? Adam. So it, it should come as no surprise, as I said, that uh, this book, which begins with the beginning of the Old Testament, starts with the first man of the Old Testament. And then if you look at the very end of chapter 10, and by the way, we're going to flip around a lot in these chapters, so maybe just get ready to have your fingers on the pages to look at them, but the very um, uh, end of chapter 10 mentions who there at the end. Chapter 10, verse 14, someone who is the son of Jesse, whose name is David, okay? So we're going to get a Again, a fly-by picture of the Old Testament from Adam to David, and in doing so, looking at these four realities. Here is the first reality. Number one, the greatness of God. First Chronicles 1 through 10, the beginning of the real story, shows us the greatness of God. It does this in a couple of ways. When you think back to Adam's Story and Adam's beginning in the book of Genesis, what is the key thing that we are told about the creation of mankind, of Adam and Eve? How were they created? You remember? In the image of God. Okay? Adam and Eve, and therefore all of their sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters and all of their descendants and all humanity after them were created in the image of God. Now, just to use an illustration, let's say that uh, I came into a place, maybe even came into this place, and I were to hand to each of you a picture of me. Like... Here I am. Take this. And oh, by the way, here are several more for you to give to your friends. This is a picture of me. This is all the information you could want about me. In fact, here's a whole bunch of pictures of me, and I think they're pretty great. And I want you to, to make sure everybody in your life knows about me. They know what I look like, and they know what I'm about, and they know my priorities. What would you then think about me? I would be very self-centered. That's exactly right. I care a whole lot about me. David loves him some David, right, is probably what you would say or something like that, okay? Think about how that has actually happened in the world. God 
created a world where a world did not exist. He created it, and on the earth, he put a picture of himself. He put an image and a likeness of himself. This, again, would be like me putting pictures or statues of me all over the place so people could see how great I am. God made Adam and Eve in his image and told them, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, th- so think about it. So that all the earth would be filled with his image and likeness. So that all the earth would know who he is. What does that make God? Very God-centered. That means that God cares a lot about himself and that he is known and made known in the world. So We have all these names here, and to us, all these names are just, we don't know who they are, most of them. We don't know much about them. We might be able to figure out who their father is or who their brothers are, who their sons are. But think about it. All of the names in this list that go on for nine chapters, I didn't count them. I don't know how many names are here. But each one of those people is made in the image of God and is meant to show us something of the greatness of God in the world. We also see the greatness of God in the world through his sovereignty in the world. Because not only does God put these people on the earth, he also is working and he's active in their lives to show what he is like in the world. And as we go through the rest of these points, we will see some of his sovereign interactions with these people, which further explain to us his greatness. So the first reality that we see is the greatness of God. The second reality that we see in these chapters is the seriousness of sin. So number two, the seriousness of sin. There's a pattern here, and I want you to notice it with me. There's a phrase that occurs about four times in these chapters, and and each time there is some kind of a correspondence with it. So look first at chapter 2. And verse 7. Chapter 2 and verse 7, you read about the son of Carmi, whose name is Achan. Achan is called a troubler of Israel who did what? What does it say? Read it back to me. He broke faith in the matter of the devoted thing. Okay, so, so most of us probably would remember the story from the book of Joshua where they were, they'd captured Uh, Jericho, but were told to leave the belongings alone. They were to be devoted to the Lord, yet Achan took some for himself. It says that he broke faith in the matter of the devoted thing. And, And what does the book of Joshua say happened to Achan because of his sin? He was put to death, right? He was, the Lord put him to death. Okay, skip over to chapter 5 and verse 25. And here we read about the tribe of Manasseh, The members of the tribe in Manasseh lived in the land, and they were at one time a mighty group of people. So in verse 24, you read about mighty warriors, famous men, heads of their father's houses. But verse 25 says that they also broke faith. See it there? They broke faith with the God of their fathers, and they whored after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So, here's what happened, verse 26, the God of Israel, again, in his sovereignty, stirred up the spirit of Pool, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile. 
So Achan broke faith with God and was put to death. The tribe of Manasseh broke faith with God, and they were taken into exile. You see this again in chapter 9 and verse 1. All Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah, the whole nation, so now it's not just a person or a tribe, it's actually the whole nation. Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. You could say because they broke faith with the Lord. And then you see it again in chapter 10 and verse 13. This time for the king of the nation. Chapter 10, verse 13. Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. And then verse 14. Because he did not seek guidance from the Lord, therefore the Lord put him to death. There was consequences for his sin. So what we're meant to see in each of those examples, is the seriousness of sin. If God is truly great, and if His greatness is to be seen in the images that He puts into the world, when those images then break faith with their Maker, they no longer show His greatness. They've instead rebelled against Him. And that rebellion merits very serious consequences. Sometimes, so go back to chapter 2 to see more examples of this. Sometimes those consequences are a loss of life. So chapter 2, verse 3, you read about Ur, the son of Judah, who it says there was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord put him to death. So sometimes there was a loss of life. Sometimes there was a loss just of a line. So you read about in chapter 2, verse 30 and 32, about some of these who were told they died childless. You might think, well, that's maybe not that big a deal in a culture like ours. They didn't have children, so what? Well, the promise of God throughout the Old Testament is one of offspring. All the way back in Genesis 3, we're to be looking for an offspring, one who would defeat the serpent. And so if one does not have offspring... One is then not doing his part in fulfilling that promise. It could be, too, a loss of land. So you read about in chapters 5 and 6 how the nation was carried away into exile because of their sin. Just like we read about with the half-tribe of Manasseh. So they're carried away into exile means they lose their land. Well, again, God had promised land to his people. So if God is removing the land and forcing them to live as exiles in another land, He is pouring out His judgment on them because of their sin, showing His greatness and sin's seriousness. But there's a third reality that we see here in these chapters. Number three, we see the riches of redemption. The riches of redemption. we see that even when God's people break faith with Him, He does not leave them in their exiled state. 
he goes after them. And when he goes after them, in fact, in the promises he makes to them, both before he sends them into exile and after he brings them back from exile, he makes certain promises to them. For example, here are some of the riches of redemption. One would be an anointed king, an anointed king over them. So in chapters 8 and 9, we read about the one who was first set up as king, who was Israel's first king. Say it out loud. What did you say? King Saul. That's exactly right. And so for two chapters here, uh, chapters 8 and 9, we read about the man named Saul, who comes from the tribe of Benjamin, who was the son of a man named Kish, who was the father of Jonathan and others. And yet, we also have read already that Saul is one who died for his breach of faith in that he broke faith with the Lord. So Saul, even though he was an anointed king, was not the ultimate promised king that Israel had. After Saul, we read about King David. Back in chapter 3 and verse 4, we read that David reigned in Hebron for seven years and six months, and he reigned 33 years in Jerusalem. If you go to chapter 2 and verse 5, you read that uh, Judah became strong. Judah the tribe became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him. You could say a prince or a ruler or a king came from the tribe of Judah. Well, who's it talking about? King David. And so David reigned in Jerusalem. And then, in fulfillment of God's promises, the sons of David reigned. So, if you go down to chapter 3 and starting in verse 10, you read about Solomon. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And then Abijah, his son. And Asa, his son. And so on down the line, all the way down through about verse 17. And you read of this series of men, each of whom were kings because they're in the line of David. And yet, all of those sons of David failed in their responsibility to reign appropriately over God's people. God had covenanted, we'll talk about this more next week, God had promised and covenanted to David that one of his sons would reign forever, but it clearly wasn't any of these sons. Because as we go throughout Second Chronicles especially, we'll see how each one of them failed in their role as an anointed king. But that's the first evidence of riches of redemption, is that there would be an anointed king. The second one is that there would be victory over enemies. Victory over enemies. So, look with me in chapter 4, and starting in about verse 38. Chapter 4, verse 38. You notice here some who were in the family of Simeon. And verse 38 uh, kind of picking it up mid-sentence there, says that these mentioned by name, these from the tribe of Simeon mentioned by name, were princes in their clans. So, so they, uh, they had some royalty there. And their father's houses increased greatly. They journeyed to the entrance of Gedor, which is on the east side of the valley, to seek pasture for their flocks, where they found rich, good pasture. And the land was very broad, quiet, and peaceful, for the former inhabitants there belonged to Ham. These, registered by name, came in the days of Hezekiah the king 
of Judah. And these from the tribe of Simeon destroyed their tents, destroyed the tents of those belonging to Ham. They destroyed the Munites who were found there and marked them for destruction to this day and settled in their place because there was pasture for their flocks. And some of them, 500 men of the Simeonites who went to Mount Seir, having as their leaders Pelatai, Nera, Rephiah, and Uziel, the sons of Ishi, and they defeated the remnant of the Amalekites who had escaped, and they have lived there to this day. What does all that mean? Why is any of that significant? Here's why. You have here these sons of Simeon, who they themselves were princes. They were rulers. Their father's house increased greatly, so they had a big family. All this is a sign of God's blessing. They were dwelling peacefully in the land. You read about the pastures for their flocks and the valley, the rich land. And they served the king of Judah by defeating his enemies, by defeating those from Ham and those from the Amalekites. This is a picture of people being submissive to God and to his king, and God then granting them victory over God's enemies. Similarly, in chapter 5, if you look over, starting in about verse 18, you read about the Reubenites and Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who had valiant men who carried shield and sword and drew the bow, expert in war, 44,760 able to go to war, and verse, this is chapter 5, verse 19. They waged war against the Hagrites, Jeter, Naphish, and Nodab. And when they prevailed over them, the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hands. Why? Because they cried out to God in the battle, and he granted their urgent plea because they trusted in him. Why did God give them victory? Because in the battle, they cried out to him and trusted in him. So they're, they're seeing what it is to be led by God's king in battle and have victory over their enemies. Which leads to the third picture of this riches of redemption, which is flourishing in the land. Flourishing in the land, okay? So as they would conquer these enemies... They would then be able to live in the land in a peaceful way, which is why you read about, for example, in chapter 4, starting in verse 9, you read about this guy named Jabez. Jabez is listed there in the sons of Judah, and we're told in chapter 4, verse 9, that Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, "'Because I bore him in pain.'" And Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, that you would uh, keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain, and God granted what he asked. And you might think, well, that's just a really great picture of a guy praying a big prayer and God answering it. You know, maybe if I pray that way, God would answer all my requests and make my life easy. Well, I don't really think that's the point. I think the point is that the things that he's prayed for are the things that God had promised to his people. Things like uh, life in the promised land and blessing in the presence of God. So you see, as God's people were submissive to the right king, they would have victory over their enemies and flourishing in the land. And then they would see the next picture, which is a people gathered for worship. So, go to chapter 6. Go to chapter 6. This is, I think, a fascinating picture. Because in chapter 6, you read about the sons of Levi. 
And remember, it was from the tribe of Levi that the priests came. And the priests had several priorities. The Levites had several priorities. For example, they were to lead the rest of the nation in corporate worship. So, chapter 6 and verse 31. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they performed their service according to their order. So God would set up his king, his people would follow the king, they would then have victory over their enemies, which would allow them to flourish in the land and then gather for worship. And it was the Levites who were to lead in the worship. They were to make offerings on the altar in the most holy place, including an offering for atonement. So look down at verse 48, chapter 6, verse 48. Their brothers, the Levites, were appointed for all the service of the tabernacle of the house of God. But Aaron and his sons made offerings on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place and to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. Okay, here's, here's why this is a big deal. I want you to see this picture, okay? The people could only gather for worship appropriately if atonement had been made for them. And it was the job of the Levites to make sure that that atonement was made. In the same way, even in the New Testament, we are told that you and I can only appropriately gather for worship before God and enter into His presence if atonement has been made for us to make us able to stand before a holy God. How can sinful people stand before a holy God? Atonement has to be made on our behalf, which is exactly what the true King did for us. When Jesus laid down His life on the cross and shed His blood on our behalf so that sinners like us could be counted right before God. All this is pictured here, even in First Chronicles. These Levites, uh, it's it's fascinating. They dwell in the land, but if you if you know what is taught back in the first five books, uh, particularly uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, you actually read that the Levites they don't have they don't have any land that they themselves inherit inherit. They live in the land, but they don't inherit the land. It's up to the other tribes to say, hey, you're a Levite, you live here in my land. And the reason the Levites didn't have any inheritance for themselves is because the book of Numbers says that the Lord their God was their inheritance. You don't get land, but you get the Lord. It's fascinating. When they, if you look at chapter 9, when they come back from exile, so you read... Um, In chapter 9, verse 2, the first to dwell again in their possessions after the exile, so after they come back into the land, the first to dwell in their possessions in the cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. The ones who were to lead the congregation in worship, they got to dwell back in their lands first, which shows that God puts a high priority on when his people gather for worship. This is a significant thing we're doing right now. 
I, I dare say that in the grand scheme of human history, that it is very possible in the eyes of God that what you and I are doing right now in this moment could very well have more eternal significance than anything that happened on Capitol Hill this week or any other week in human history. Like, this is no small thing that you and I are doing right now. And speaking of returning from exile, that is another indication of the riches of redemption. The fact that even God's people who were rightly judged for their sins by being taken as captives and sent into a foreign land, that God would even allow them to return from exile. Just like, and the exile is like a replay of what had happened previously in the Old Testament when they were sent to Egypt and dwelt there as slaves and God brought them out of Egypt, allowing them to return from captivity in Egypt. Now He's allowing them to return from captivity in Babylon, but it also looks forward to the great deliverance that God will accomplish for us when our wanderings and our exile one day are over and we are brought back into the presence of God, into the land that He will give us forever. So the riches of redemption are seen here. And then lastly, number four, the fourth reality, the good news of God's kingdom. The fourth reality, the good news of God's kingdom. So go with me to chapter 10. So we've, we've surveyed, we've hit really only the very high points of chapters 1 through 9. I told you that was fast forward of a lot of years of Old Testament history. And now chapter 10, we slow down just a little bit to read about this man, Saul, who became king in Israel. So let me read for you, starting in chapter 10, verse 1, and I want you to follow along. This is going to be familiar to most of you, but it's, we need to see how the good news of God's kingdom is seen even in a tragic story. So, chapter 10, verse 1, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died. Thus Saul died. He and his three sons and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. And the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, and they stripped him and took his head and carried his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. 
Okay, stop there, and let's get the picture of what's happening here. The king of God's people has been defeated in battle. He's had his head crushed, probably removed and taken back as a trophy into the land of the Philistines. And it says that the Philistines sent messengers throughout their land to carry the good news to their idols and to their people. You could say it this way, and you would be right. The Philistines are evangelizing to their own people that the king of Israel is dead. Carrying, sending messengers to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. So Saul's death was good news for the enemies of God. The king of Israel is dead. Our idols have prevailed against the Lord of Israel, is what they are saying and thinking. Verse 10, They put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. I love verses 11 and 12, But when all of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines had heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose, took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and brought them to Jabesh, and they buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted seven days. It's like these men saying, you're not going to do that to the body of our king. They go back and they get the body at risk of their own lives, and they bring it back, and they fast, and they mourn for the death of their king. And you say, how is this good news? I thought we were talking about good news. Look at verse 13. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. We talked from the beginning about God's sovereignty in all of this. Who put Saul to death? The Lord did. He said, I thought the archers did. I thought Saul fell on his own sword. Who controlled it? The Lord did. The Lord put Saul to death and then turned the kingdom over to David. So Saul's death was good news for the enemies of God, but David's kingdom would be good news for the people of God. And even better than that, we know of a kingdom of David's son who is coming, and his kingdom is good news only for those who submit to it. David's greater son will one day come, and he will set up his kingdom, and he will reign on his throne, and that will be good news even better news than this. Even better news than this was for the Philistines. Even better news than, this, than David's kingdom was for Israel will be the good news of the son of David coming to reign in our midst if we submit to it. Last week I was reading a sermon, uh, a Mark Dever sermon. I like Mark Dever. He, he preached this about 20 years ago. And in that sermon he said that the church is like a news organization, like a news organization. He talked about how media outlets have stories to tell, they have a narrative to get across, and, and many times even their message will change depending on, you know, who the source is, who's telling the story. But he said that the church also has a story to tell. 
The church also has a narrative that we're trying to get out. And our message does not change. Our message is consistent because it comes from the same source. And our news is better, it's more true, it's more urgent than anything you're going to see on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or ESPN or anywhere else. And it never has to be updated. It truly is the beginning of the real story. I have a friend who, who said, only God could write a story where the beginning, uh, where the beginning is perfect and the end is better. So let's give our lives to this story, to know it, to share it, and to let it shape our perspective on the world. Let's pray. So, Father, we've covered a lot of material tonight, and I pray that it is helpful. I pray. I know that I cannot do justice to all that is here, but I know that because it's from you, it's what we need. And so I ask that you'll give us these truths to think about, to meditate on, to consider how they matter, why they matter, what they mean for us, what they mean for our world, for our lives. So I ask that as we talk through these things now in small groups that our perspective will be yours, uh, that these great realities would indeed shape us into what you would have us to be. I pray we would submit to you and to your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.